Beautiful. We are one week closer to relaunching church in person, on site, God willing. Uh, that's going to happen for us in the mornings on the 9th of August. And so be praying that that might be the case. And just want to let you know a couple of things uh, that will help us do that really well. Uh, it's possible to think that you just open the doors and get back on with things. Uh, but that's not going to work. Uh, at least it's not going to work well. And it's not going to provide the foundation, the footing for us to launch out with the good news of Jesus to our community as well as welcome people in who have been checking out the things of Jesus during the time of the stream. So before we relaunch Church in the Mornings on the 9th of August, we've got a couple of info sessions that I'd love to invite you to come to to hear how you can be a part of making that work well. And so that's going to happen uh, across the 25th, 26th of July, three weeks' time. Uh, a morning session on the Saturday and an Arvo and then an Arvo one on the Sunday. So if you can pick one of those sessions, if you belong to this church, if your health means that you can come on in, uh, then please, we'd love to invite you to that so that you can consider how you can be a part of relaunching church. And so uh, put that in your calendar. Well, as the guy said, over 30 weeks now, we have been working our way through the book of 1 Corinthians. Over three years we finally come to the end. And it's been so good to see the growth among our church in that time. In number, the Lord has added to us, he has saved, he's brought people in, and also to hear the way that he's grown us in the things of Jesus. Good to hear people reflect on that on the video just then. And here's the thing though, as we come to the, the ending, chapter 16, it can feel like a bit of an anticlimax. <laughs> Uh, it feels like most weeks we've been drawn into massive things that 1 Corinthians has been serving up. Uh, the, the things of the Spirit, baptism in the Spirit, gifts, the resurrection life, a work in the Lord that is not in vain, victory over death. And then comes chapter 16, which has a few admin details, some travel plans and a farewell. <laughs> And it can kind of feel like you've just finished this epic movie with this massive climax and just flicked over and the news is on with you know, a finance update and a report of a politician landing in the place. It, it can kind of feel like that as, as the letter wraps up. And yet, I hope to show you that it is no less helpful in revealing to us who our God is, who we are in relationship to him, and what he would have for our lives. And so in this kind of bitsy ending that Paul puts in the letter, I want to draw out three big things. The first two are broader things about the Christian faith, and the third thing is a more specific thing about the Christian life. Uh, so the first two things will kind of pan back a bit, and then in the third point we'll look a little closer. So here's the first thing that we can learn from this ending, and that is the Christian faith is grounded in history. The Christian faith is grounded in history. My eight and nine-year-old boys are hooked by a series of books called Wings of Fire. And it's this series of books which is about dragons, uh, groups of young dragons who fulfill prophecy in this fantasy world. And there's fighting, there's battles, there's blood, there's victory. They absolutely love it. And it's what the genre of fantasy does well, right? It calls you to suspend disbelief and to be drawn into this imaginary world and be captured by it. Here's the thing. 
many people in our community put Christianity in that category. The category of myth and make-believe, it's a religious fantasy. I mean, after all, have you read it? There's a man who turns water into wine like that. A man who heals the sick with a word who raises the dead, who walks on the water, who himself is raised from the dead. Many people just see the New Testament as a bunch of superstitious spiritual stories that gullible adults need to find some comfort, some substance to life. But notice what Paul does in chapter 16, which is reflective of the whole New Testament. The same author who's been speaking about great spiritual heavenly realities, you know, baptism in the spirit, spiritual gifts, resurrection bodies in a resurrection age, in the very next breath talks about historical events that were taking place in real time, in a real place, amongst a real group of people. And the same man who holds out these unseen spiritual truths expects us to take him at face value about those truths as he does the ordinary first century events. That's what's going on in these first four verses where Paul is giving basic instructions to the people in Corinth about how they are to go about preparing a financial gift for the Lord's people in Jerusalem. Now let me give you a little bit of background to this situation because it kind of opens up some bigger things for us. Uh, back in Acts chapter 11, Acts is a document in the New Testament which traces the birth of the church, that the history of it, how the gospel goes out. In Acts chapter 11, we find the words of a prophet, a man who spoke um, words that in the, in the future, all of the Roman Empire would be gripped by famine. And then Luke, the author, the historian who wrote it, inserts a little editorial note to say this actually took place. And it took place during the reign of Claudius, who we know from many sources was the Caesar of Rome from AD 41 to 54. Now, this is not just a claim made in the Bible. This famine that occurred over this period of time, prophesied in Acts chapter 11, is testified to by numbers of first century witnesses outside of the Bible, a whole stack of them. And this famine that came across the Roman world particularly hit Jerusalem hard and particularly the Christians in Jerusalem because they had been shunned by the Jewish family. Once, once the Jews worked out that Christianity was actually something quite distinct from following the way of Moses, that to follow Jesus was very different, they were kicked out and cut off from the social welfare that that group of Jews would have been able to provide. And so the early Christians, the Jews who'd become Christians in Jerusalem, were very vulnerable when this famine struck. And so the New Testament contains a number of references to this difficulty faced by them, and Paul's concern to see them provided for. Now, my point for now is just this. The New Testament speaks of amazing things, spiritual things, miraculous things, things that are out of this world, but it does so in a way that expects us to take it at face value just as it reports on ordinary first century historical events. Christianity is about more than just history, yet its teaching about spiritual things is grounded in it. 
And most amazingly, because God stepped into our world in the person of Jesus in a real place, in a real moment of time. We need to keep reminding ourselves of this truth. That the Christian faith is not a religious fantasy. We need to keep reminding each other, particularly as the hostility towards Christianity rises in our day as it becomes more and more clear that we belong to the king of heaven not to the prince of this world the same man who spoke about our heavenly bodies in a resurrection age speaks just as matter-of-factly about first century events a famine in jerusalem the christian faith is not fantasy it is reality as spoken by god through men who are in touch with the real world this is the first thing this chapter shows us. Christianity is grounded in history. Here's the second broader point, and that is the Christian faith is powerful to unite. See, this collection for the Lord's people in Jerusalem is being gathered up, collected by Christians who are in other continents, all the way over in Archaea, all the way closer to Rome for these people in Corinth. Why are these people all the way over here concerned to give to people all the way over here that they've never met, that they'll never meet? Well, at a very basic level, this concern to provide for these people's needs is the way of love. And in chapter 13, Paul has shown us that Christianity is marked by the way of love. Here are a group of people, Christians in need. Here are a group of people who have the means to meet it. And so love says that they do. But there's an even bigger, deeper, more theological reason that Paul is so concerned that the churches that he has planted around the ancient world would care for this group of people. Uh, numbers of times through the New Testament, we see Paul talking about this collection. This is a big deal for him. Why? Well, it's because of a specific theological motivation. And you don't actually get it in these four verses, but you do get it in other verses that are talking about the same collection. Um, come back just one, a few pages to Romans chapter 15. Um, just one book to the left. Romans 15, um, a letter written by Paul, the same author, to Christians in Rome that he hadn't actually met. And he writes Romans some three, four years after 1 Corinthians. Okay, so he's written instructions to the Corinthians about gathering money up for these people in Jerusalem. Now, a few years later, we get this document. Chapter 15, verse 25. Now, however, I'm on my way to Jerusalem in the service of the Lord's people there. For Macedonia and Archaea... Now, Achaia is the region in which the city of Corinth is in. It's kind of like the central coast and Erina. So Achaia, that's, that's Corinthians. Macedonia and Achaia were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the Lord's people in Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in the Jews' spiritual blessings, they owe it to the Jews to share with them in their material blessings. Did you catch that? Paul gives a theological reason for his concern that the Corinthians would send money to the Christians in Jerusalem. Christianity is not a Western religion. 
Christianity is a, an Eastern religion, a Middle Eastern religion, wh- whose origins stretch even further back than the first century, all the way back into the Old Testament, into the times of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, through to Moses, David. We see that it was always God's plan to bring blessing to his world through Israel and only through Israel. But here's where you've got to listen really carefully so you don't mess this up politically. Because what the New Testament makes clear is that the Israel God will bless the world with is not national Israel, not political Israel, not a people defined by ethnicity or geography, but a spiritual people. A spiritual people who belong to true Israel himself. Here's the key. God's blessing to the world will come through Israel. Israel is a person. Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 2, Romans chapter 9, a couple of places you can chase up later. Jesus comes as the true Israel, but he comes through the Jewish line. He comes as the Messiah in fulfillment to the Jewish scriptures. That's the great tragedy about Judaism. Uh, it's, it's their Bible, it's their scriptures that point to the hope of the world, the Messiah, but they missed him. In the gospel, something profound happens in Jesus Christ, something that I think we can tend to miss with 2,000 years of church history and most of us, if not all of us, Gentiles. See, what happened when Jesus came is that the two most different people on planet Earth were joined together as one. The two two most different people, which is not men and women, it is not the left and the right, it's not black, white, iPhone, Android, the two most different people on planet Earth, Jew and Gentile. How come? Well, what could make people more different to each other than one belonging to the God of the universe and the other being a stranger to him. Think about how we define our identity. If the greatest thing about our identity is defined in relation to God, not ourselves, but to God, then knowing him and being known by him is the biggest distinguishing mark possible. Not our sex or ethnicity or skin colour, which is what we find drives much of the identity politics of our day. But rather, whether you belong to God or not. And it was Israel who had been set apart to God, who were holy to him. All the way through the Old Testament, it was this particular group of people. There was was some hints of others coming in, but it was Israel who belonged to God, whilst the rest of pagan humanity lived in idolatry. You couldn't have had more different people than the people of Israel and the rest of the world. But then, in the coming of Jesus, God does what he had always intended to do from eternity past. He'd given glimpses of it through the Old Testament, but in the coming of Jesus, he brings Jew, Gentile together as one. The two most different people imaginable. 
to create one new humanity. Come over to Ephesians chapter 2 with me, where we see this so clearly. Much of what's come before uh, chapter 2 has been leading up to this. And again, I think it's something that we can uh, often miss. Have a look there, verse 11. Now, he's writing to a bunch of Gentile Christians, non-Jews, people like the Corinthians who had heard the message of Jesus as pagans, had repented, put their trust in him. Listen to what Paul says to them. Remember, therefore, that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. Do you see how he sums up, defines Gentiles, non-Jews? But, verse 13, now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. Catch this, track with this. His, that's God's purpose, was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. What's God's goal in the gospel? To join the two most different people on planet earth in one new humanity, Jew and Gentile. Gentiles brought in to the people of Israel, into the person of Israel, Jesus, through faith, not through ethnicity, not through who your parents were, but by trusting in the Messiah. See, Without Jesus coming into our world, the people of Corinth, they were lost to God forever. The people of the Central Coast, we would have been lost to God forever. But he did come. Jesus, the Son of God, came so that all who would turn to him, trusting that he died for our sin, that he took God's proper anger for the way that we've rejected him, then we would be forgiven, that we would be set apart to God, holy to God, that we would belong to Israel, to his people. This good news is found in Christ, the long-awaited Jewish Messiah. Do you start to see why Paul was so concerned, particularly for the needs of the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem? that these Gentile Christians, the Corinthians, would show this material concern for them. Yes, it was an act of love, meeting need, but it was also theological. It was an expression of the gospel. Uh, Paul worked so hard to see that Jew and Gentile might come together as one in the church. The gospel brings unity. It has the power to unite the most different people on planet Earth. 
Now, I said this second point was also a, a broader one that teaches us about the nature of Christianity. But before moving on, let's just consider how it applies to us. We are living in the most divided of times, aren't we? Where it's now observable to see the division widening and deepening between nations, China, the US, Australia, within nations, Hong Kong, Australian states and territories. You know, this, this great pandemic that was supposed to pull humanity together to face a common cause, to defeat it together, divisions run deep. But like never before, our divisions run along even narrower lines of race, gender and sexuality. Now here's the thing that the Bible would offer, a pessimistic and an optimistic thing. The pessimistic thing is that this division will never stop in our lifetime. Not in our children's lifetime. We might see some improvements in some areas, as you can point to. We, we have seen some improvements. But we will not see the elimination of the deep division and injustice that flows. And in the mercy of God, this division may not be as bad as it could be. But no matter who holds the reins of power over who, everyone is impotent to remove this division, to bring unity and justice, except King Jesus. We should be concerned to stand for justice and equality, to work for it. And yet our world will never know it apart from the gospel. Apart from the gospel, which is God's gospel, which has power to unite. Here's the optimistic thing. See, the gospel is real. It's not fantasy. It's God's gospel grounded in history that he is determined to spread across his world. Uniting sinners back with himself, regardless of who they are or what they've done. If they would look to Jesus, they're his. To unite sinners to each other, regardless of race, sex, culture, geography. So that where the gospel takes root, individuals and households and communities are really changed. Changed in such a way where there is unity, there is the ability to love and to serve that apart from the gospel there is no hope of doing. And we see, as the gospel takes root, a hint, a taste of what will come in all of its fullness when God's kingdom comes, when Jesus returns, when every sword will be beaten into farming tools, Isaiah chapter 2, and when peace will roll like a river, chapter 66. The gospel has power to unite the most different people on planet earth, Jew and Gentile. Therefore, how much more should it unite us? This church family at EV. Unite us together, no matter our differences. See, our differences in our church family in Erina, compared to the differences between Jew and Gentile, they're tiny. Regardless of age, of background, of taste, if we belong to Jesus Messiah, we have been united 
in a way that is most profound. And we've been united not just with each other, but with Bible-believing Christians across the country and across the world. Take an interest. We have a bunch of mission partners that we partner with who are out there across the country and the world. Take an interest in what they're doing, in how you can pray for them, in how you can be connected with those that we are united to through Christ. But here's the thing. To be a Christian is to belong to the biggest thing in the universe. Let me say that again. Think about this about yourself. If, if you're a follower of Jesus, you are connected to the biggest thing, the biggest movement that history will ever know. Because you are united with God. You are united with believers across your region, country, globe, and down through the ages. We have very really been joined to those who have gone before us, to those who will follow Jesus after us. There is nothing bigger that you can be connected to than through Jesus. So, can I just apply this to our moment? How poor a reflection is it to watch church in a lounge room? You know, maybe with a few others with you, as you're able, and I know a bunch of you are doing, and keep doing that. But, but how, how diminished an experience of what it means to belong to God and his people is what we're currently experiencing. We're not able to give full expression to the massive thing God has saved us into. And we are at risk of thinking that Christianity is just a private thing. Just something I do in my lounge room on my couch with the small group of people that I'm happy to have with me. Now this has been put on us by the pandemic. Under the sovereign hand of God who's working all things for good. This has been put on us. We haven't chosen it. But as restrictions ease and as your health allows, be determined to get back to church. Be determined to get out of the laundry, maybe the comforts and convenience that that has brought, to give expression to who you are, a gathered person with the united people of God. This is something that we are trusting God through, but as we're able, this experience of streaming is not the experience expresses the unity that we have as God's people gathered in its fullness. There's the second thing. The Christian faith has the power to unite. Here's the third and final thing. And come back to chapter 16 of 1 Corinthians where we're just pushing it a little closer to the verses here, particularly those first few around the giving. This part of the Bible makes clear that Christians are givers. Christians are marked by giving. Time, yes. Energy, yes. Prayer, yes. Money. From the very beginning, giving away your money has been part of the Christian life. And that's because we have been united with a God who's a giver. It's in his nature to give. Again, connected to this 
collection, this giving. Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 says there, um, I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. As he's calling them to give, I'm not commanding you, I want to test the sincerity of your love. Verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. See what Paul holds out as the motivator for why Christians are givers? The gospel. The God of the gospel who is a giver. Jesus, who though infinitely and eternally rich, let go of the privilege of what it is to be God and humbled himself. He became poor so that he might die on a cross so that we might be able to trust him, be forgiven and to be raised as sons and daughters of the living God. We are givers because God is a giver. Now, notice in these verses just a few things about the nature of giving here. Number one, it's to be regular. See verse 1, about the collection for the Lord's people, do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. Notice that it's regular. Giving for Christians isn't what Christmas is to most people. Just this brief season to spend money on other people, kind of come across generous, and then spend the rest of the year spending every dollar on myself. But rather, giving money away is woven into the life of the Christian. It's a discipline. It's a regular habit. It's the first thing we see. It's regular. It's to be done on the first day of every week. Secondly, we see here, though, that it's not a law. Um, notice, he, he doesn't set an amount or a percentage. He says, rather, set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income. Now, income there is probably a, a more modern translation. You know, it's not as though most of them had regular income, as, as many of us might. But rather, depending on what you made that week, your profit, how you prospered, in keeping with that, then work out what to give away. So it mean that, meant that if it had been a hard week, there was less to give. If it had been a more prosperous week, there was more to be generous with. Notice Paul doesn't set a law or a percentage. This is a decision that they're to make in keeping with their circumstances. Number three, though, notice it's generous. Paul expects that the church won't just be giving pocket change, but rather a large amount. That's clear from verse 3. He says, when I arrive, I'll give letters of introduction to the men you approve and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. I might go also. Uh, this was expected to be such a significant gift that it would require serious stewardship. Uh, multiple men, letters, uh, this was expected to be generous. And in 2 Corinthians, this same gift, Paul describes it as a liberal one, this liberal gift. So the mark of Christian giving is to be marked by generous giving. Fourth thing that we notice here about Paul's dealing with the church on giving is just how straightforward it is 
right? He, he doesn't say, okay, I want you to go away. I want you to pray. I want you to fast before the Lord to work out how much you should give. He just says, make a decision about what you're going to give based on your circumstances and give it. Very straightforward. Uh, there's no music behind his appeal. There's no slick video. Just a simple instruction. Because notice clearly he's trading on gospel conviction rather than emotional manipulation. Which is why we've not been able to do it for a long time. But when we are gathered and the bags go around, it's why that always happens before any words are said about it. Before there's a, a message. This is something that we want you to do clear-mindedly. Having thought about it, having made a decision. Not under compulsion. Notice just how straightforward it is. And notice also he just, he just needs to point out the need and, and, and call Christians to give to it. I'm always struck by um, you know, preschools that we've been part of, soccer clubs, sporting clubs, all those kind of things. Um, so much work needs to go into fundraising. And then I'm, I'm interested that kind of total amounts that end up coming in are usually pretty modest. The thing about church, about this church, man, there is gospel conviction because you get it. And we, we bring the needs and the opportunities to you and generously people get behind this in a very straightforward way. And that leads me to the fifth and final observation about the nature of giving here. What Paul calls them to give to here is a cause among a number of causes. See, these giving instructions had a very specific situation in mind, the material needs of the Christians in Jerusalem. And one possible similar application for us is our partnership with Compassion where we partner there with local churches who seek to meet the material needs of those who are impoverished, uh, material needs and spiritual needs. Another similar application for us is the way that we financially support young church plants, churches who aren't able to stand on their own two feet just yet financially and are working to that so that in turn they can be a blessing to others. Uh, we do this. And whilst love and our unity in Christ are reasons to support Christians beyond our own region. There are causes nearby that the New Testament calls us to be generous towards also, particularly the work of the gospel. See, Paul hints that he expects Christians to give to more than just the poor Christians, even in this passage. Verse 5 in his plans there, after I go through Macedonia, I'll come to you, for I'll be coming through Macedonia. Perhaps I'll stay with you for a little while or even spend the winter so that you can help me on my journey wherever I go. By helping Paul on his journey, isn't the expectation of just you know, a packed lunch for the day and a farewell? He's hinting there at financial support that the church would give him so that he could continue on his way to do gospel work. He says the same of Timothy, verse 10. When Timothy comes, see to it that he has nothing to fear while he is with you, for he is carrying on the work of the Lord, just as I am. No one then should treat him with contempt. Send him on his way in peace, so that he may return to me. Giving to gospel ministry 
is to give to the work that is not in vain. How good is that truth that we unpacked last week off the back of the resurrection? Give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. For you know that not even death will snuff it out, will mock it. All this to say that this last chapter of 1 Corinthians and the New Testament unapologetically holds out financial giving as a mark of the Christian life. Now, in this time, some of us have really felt the financial sting of the pandemic. And so as you hear this, as you look at these verses, let the chapter encourage you to give as you're able, in keeping with your circumstances. For a bunch of us, we haven't been impacted. In fact, some people are doing even better. How much more, therefore, for us who are doing okay, is it important that we are to be givers, giving as we're able? Not reluctantly or under compulsion, but in response to the gospel. In response to that amazing news that God himself became poor, that we might become spiritually rich with the hope of a material future with resurrected bodies and so whatever you are able to give remember this christian life is marked by it and paul describes it not in these verses but again connected to the same collection in 2 corinthians he describes it as an act of grace done to the honor of the lord isn't that beautiful Uh, for us to be generous with our money to give it away is an act of grace of favor and it's done yes for people's good but it's done for the honor of our lord for he is worthy for he has shown us the way of love friends as we finish up the letter with this chapter we see that this christian message The hope that we have, it's grounded in history and reality. It's solid and firm. Keep clinging to Jesus. It shows us the power of the gospel to unite, to bring people together. And we long to be together again. Let's make every opportunity of that as we're able. Make every opportunity to love and support and show the unity we have with Christians beyond. And thirdly, that Christians are givers, instruments of grace for the honour of our Lord. Let me pray for us. Father God, we thank you so much for your word, for the letter of 1 Corinthians, that you had written for the good of those in Corinth 2,000 years ago, but for the good of each one of your people ever since. And we thank you for evidence of the way that you have grown us over this last 10 weeks, over these last three years as we've pushed into it. You have shown us more clearly who you are. You've shown us the world the right way up. That you've called us to repentance, to turn from living in a Corinthian way. You've called us to live in a way that has Jesus over our lives and so we ask please that you would continue to do this that the things that you have taught us might continue to be played out in our lives we pray particularly that we would continue to stand firm in the gospel 
for those, Lord, who are wobbling, for those who are um, doubting, please bring great confidence that with our faith in Jesus, we are connected to you, that you love us and that you are coming for us. Pray, please, that the unity of the gospel might be evidenced among us. Please bring us back together. Please enable us to love each other well as we're scattered and as we come back. And please continue to move in us that we might be people who are givers, who are so captured by you and your purposes for the good of others that we would see the act of grace giving is and that we might do it to your honour and that you might indeed be honoured. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.